0: And that really will kick off the theme of today's text, really looking forward to home, looking forward to home. In 1986, there's a story that came up in the news of a little child named Saru Khan, who with his 14-year-old brother were searching the streets in their home in Burhampur, India. They were searching for spare change, and Saru and his brother, Gadu, went wandering through a train station where Saru rested in a boxcar, and his brother went on. A few hours later, five-year-old Saru woke up hundreds of miles away in Calcutta, India, eons away from home and family. Not knowing where he was or even how to get back, he survived on the streets for weeks, begging. Eventually, he got taken into an orphanage, and in due time, he was adopted by an Australian couple, and he grew up in Tasmania. 26 years later, in 2011, at the age of 31, using a new technology called Google Earth, he began to search for home. Using the ruler feature, he mapped out a search radius by making an educated guess on how far he traveled on the train 26 years previous. After countless hours of scouring that area, he spotted one vague landmark that led him to another, that led him to another, a neighborhood, a street, a tin roof. The next year, Saru embarked on a trip from Australia back to India. And once he arrived in that area, he began talking to the people there and sharing his story. And those people helped him make his way back to his mother and his sister and his brother. Helped him make his way back home. So story is one of finding his way home. But let's pause for a moment and just imagine how you would feel. Put yourself in his place. How would you feel if you woke up hundreds of miles away in a strange place as a five-year-old, not knowing where you were or what direction home would be in? Imagine that feeling. When I was six or seven, I was put on a plane to go visit my father in Pittsburgh. And the plane was delayed and delayed and delayed. And when I finally got to Pittsburgh, late at night, my father was nowhere to be seen. The the baggage area cleared out, and I was left there all alone. I was taken, actually, to the lost baggage claim person. (laughs) But I remember how lonely I felt, how scared. I I can still recall the lump in my throat I had. Where was mom? Where was dad? Where was home? I was six years old. Do you have a story like that? Kids, have you ever lost your mom or dad even for a moment or two in, in the feeling that you get of panic? Have you ever had that feeling? If you can recall that feeling, you can recall the feeling of, the, of that night 2,000 years ago in the upper room that we're going to read about. That's the feeling that the disciples had as Jesus said these words in verse 1 of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I'm going to be there and to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him. You, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And now I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This passage is one of great power, great encouragement for the body. But it doesn't start out that way, does it? That's not the way our passage starts out. Our passage starts out in verse 1 with Jesus saying, Disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled that word troubled is the same word that it was used back in the previous chapter when when he was when Jesus was troubled over what was about to happen with Judas. He was devastated, you remember that last week. It's the same Greek word that's used back in chapter 11 with Lazarus where Jesus was deeply troubled, deeply moved, devastated. Jesus sensed that the disciples devastated why why were they devastated why did they have lumps in their throats that jesus would have to speak to that well to understand that you have to look back a couple verses first think back to what we talked about last week with judas so here the 12 disciples are and and jesus says one of you is going to betray me that must have devastated the group but then he goes on, and you see that, that in verses uh, 36 and following, we find out that, that Peter is going to betray. It says there, Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will later. Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay, lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So there it is, Judas, and then the rock, Peter. You're going to betray me. But I think what is devastating that little group the most is found in verses 31 and 32 and 33. Peter is telling them that his time has come. The Son of Man will be glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews. So now I tell you where I am going. You cannot come. Jesus is leaving them. I'm leaving I'm leaving you. Do you empathize with the disciples? Do you feel that that closure that their leader is leaving? Do you feel the lumps in their throats? Jesus does. And that's why he says, don't be troubled, trust in me. Don't be troubled, trust in me. Those are the words. Actually, those words control this whole chapter. Trust in Jesus. Trust me, I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. Trust me, I'm not leaving you without giving you some hope. Trust me, I'm going to prepare you for my departure. And that is the rest of the chapter. Because Jesus is going to lay out five ways he is going to prepare his disciples for his leaving. And the first way is, don't be troubled. Trust me, I'm preparing a place for you. Don't be troubled, trust me, I'm preparing a place for you. Look at verses 2 and 3. That's what Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms, if it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. My mother was a wonderful person. Those of you who have been here for any amount of time probably know my mother pretty well. She was a wonderful person. One of the things that she did that I still remember is when I came home from college, I would usually drive home after classes or after finals late at night and I would call her before I left and she would always say, oh honey, I have a fire going in the fireplace and I put on a big pot of soup for you. She would always, you know, my favorite soup was three bear porridge. A a glorified potato soup but it's my favorite soup. And she would always say, I have a pot of three bear porridge on for you. And that would make me anticipate going home. She would tell me those things so that I would look forward to coming home. She made me anticipate home by saying that. And that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. And us. Jesus is talking about heaven here. That's the place he's talking about. And he's going to prepare a place in heaven for us. It's interesting, all peoples, all cultures around the world have some idea of heaven, don't they? In his book, uh, in Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, he says this, The sense that we live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian Aboriginals pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. Native Americans believed that the afterlife, their spirits would hunt for the buffalo. In the pyramids of Egypt, people were embalmed with maps to the life hereafter. The Romans believed the righteous would feast in the Elysium fields. Every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal that this world is not all there is, he writes. Why is that? Why is it so universal? And I'll tell you why. Because God has hardwired us that way when he created us. For the eternal. For something beyond, something better beyond. Our hearts pant after him. C.S. Lewis called it the secret signature of each soul. Isn't that wonderful? How does he come up with those things? Don't you wish you could come up with those things? The secret signature of each soul. The incommunicable, unappeasable, inborn desire for something better beyond. And that is what Jesus is saying is going to fuel you through life's difficulties is looking forward to that. Heaven should be something that we subordinate all of our troubles underneath. That's what Jonathan Edwards wrote. He says, It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of this life. Do you do that? when you go into issues and troubles and difficulties and persecutions and strife and tribulation, is that on your mind? Is that where you go? Is that where you run? That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Let that comfort you, disciples. Let that comfort you, people of God, today. Let that knowledge that you do have a better place to look forward to take the lump in your throat away. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us the saints throughout history have done. I was very encouraged to hear someone in our prayer time read this verse from from, uh, that very same chapter. They, all the saints that are listed in Hebrews 11, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. That Sabbath rest. That's how they got through the difficult times. Not by pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Not by just enduring. By proactively looking forward to something. Brothers and sisters, that is a powerful powerful spiritual salve for you in times of trouble. And that's what Jesus is pointing our eyes and our minds and our hearts to. He's preparing a place for us in heaven. He's making home inviting. He's putting on a big pot of three bear porridge for you. Okay, so he's preparing a place in heaven for us. How do we get there? That's what Philip's question was, right? You know, that's what, actually, that's what Peter's question was from the previous chapter, and that's what, that's what, I'm sorry, Thomas's question is here in verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You keep saying you're going somewhere. We don't know where you're going. Can you give us a point of reference here? How can we know the way, Thomas says? Okay, sounds good. I want to go home. What's the way? And Jesus answered in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying is, don't be troubled. Trust me. I am preparing a way for you. I am the way. This is perhaps one of the most quoted verses in the gospel of john if not the bible it's also one of the most theologically dense scriptures we could look at In it is the doctrine of exclusivity jesus is the only way right that's what he is saying here no one comes to the father except through jesus christ we as believers this is one of the things that we have to struggle with culture over There are not many ways up the mountain. There's one way. It also talks about our assurance of life after death. I am the life. Paul talks about going from life to life. There's also the understanding that, that what we believe, people, is definite article truth. The truth, not a truth, the truth. As C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is axiomatic. It's true. We, we don't enter into a discussion with people in a comparative religious, religion type of, of discussion. We enter into, here is the truth. Well, that's interesting what you believe. Here is the truth. But what we want to draw from this contextually is that Jesus not only points the way to salvation, he is the way to salvation. That's what he wants. That's what, how he's answering Thomas. That's how he's answering Peter. I am the way. Mark Johnson in his commentary puts it this way. There's a world of difference between a person says, I'll show you on a map, and a person who says, I'll take you there. It's a world of difference, isn't there? Jesus is saying, I'll take you there. I am the way home. And if you trust me, I'll get you there. But there is that controlling verse again. Verse 1. If you trust me. That's what our faith is all about. That's what Hebrews 11 starts out with. What is faith? It's being certain of what we do not see, right? It's faith, it's trust. And so the gospel asks you, the gospel asks you, do you trust Jesus when he tells you you need a savior? That's, what the, that's the question the gospel asks you. Do you believe you're in a hole called sin that you can't get yourself out of? Do you have faith that he lived the life that you never will? That's another question the gospel asks you. Do you have faith that Jesus lived the life that you cannot? He lived the Hebrews' perfect life. Tempted in every way, yet did not sin. You and I cannot live that way. Jesus did. That's the work, part of the work he does for us. Another question the gospel asks is, do you trust that Jesus was your substitute on the cross? That he died in your place. That the penalty that you deserve, Romans 3.23, death, is what he died for you. Another question the gospel asks is, do you have faith that you've been given Jesus' perfect righteousness? You know, I find it very interesting over the years pastoring. I think that this is one of the things that that believers struggle with most. They go, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me and I need a savior. But people go, really? When God looks at me, he sees perfection, perfectness, righteousness, and he treats me that way? He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve? I think think that's the the part of faith and trust in the gospel that, that believers really struggle with is living out your identity in Christ. Another question the gospel asks is do you trust that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and lives today? Because as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the linchpin. That's what proves everything that he did. That's what proves everything that he said. You see, Jesus doesn't just point you in the direction. He says, I am the way. Trust in me. But you have to trust him. There comes a point where you say, do I trust him? 150 years ago, when buildings were getting taller and taller, elevators began coming into more and more use. Back then, elevators were no more than than pretty much open platforms that routinely used to fail, and people would get seriously injured. Elisha Otis, now famous for the Otis elevators that we all know and love, solved the problem by inventing a braking system. But initially, he had trouble selling his elevators because people didn't trust the braking system. So he did an ingenious thing. He went to what was then the World's Fair of the Day in Manhattan. And every hour of that exposition, he would step onto his elevator 50 feet off the ground and he would order his assistant to cut the cable. And his assistant would cut the cable and he would plummet to earth and then his braking system would kick in and it would take him down gently to the bottom after which he would always step off the platform and say the same words. All safe, people. All safe. In a way, for you to enter into the way with Jesus, you have to cut the cable that you are relying on to get you into heaven don't know what that is for you. You have to cut the cord of your own righteous record. You have to cut the cord of your own good works. You have to cut the cord of your philanthropy. You have to cut the cord of whatever you are saying, this will do it for me. And you have to trust Jesus. And you literally have to trust Jesus that he will take you down and that it's all safe, people. All safe because he is the way. Third, Jesus says, don't be troubled, trust me. I'm preparing a work for you. Look with me at verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus is leaving them, But he's not leaving them with nothing to do. He's preparing a work for them. In fact, he says here that they will do greater things than Jesus. Now, let me pause here and ask you a question. When I read that earlier, did anyone here go, greater than Jesus? What's going on here? Well, there are basically two ways to take this. First, Greater in the sense of miracles. To some, Jesus is referring to the apostolic acts. All the the miracles that they do. That they would do greater miracles than Jesus. And some even expand this to all believers. That all believers will do more miraculous things than Jesus. If you have enough faith, they say, right? Right? But has anyone really done greater miracles than Jesus? I mean, just pause for a moment and think about this. Healing people at will. Feeding people, thousands and thousands of people from a morsel or two. Calming storms. Raising people from the dead. Now, I think... What Jesus means is something else. I like what Leon Morris says. He says, What Jesus means, we may see in the narrative of Acts, that there are a few miracles in healing, but the emphasis is on the mighty act of conversion. The emphasis is on the mighty act of conversion. At the end of Jesus' ministry, I think we can safely say that there were probably about 500 believers, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but then he told them at the end of his life, gave them the great commission, right? Go into all the nations and teach them and baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then after he rose from the dead, before his ascension in Acts 8, he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the ends of the earth. I'd like to take a moment and just show you what that looks like. This is what is meant by greater things. Matt This is the growth of Christianity from the time of Jesus. In the upper left-hand corner, you can see the timestamp. Jesus said, you'll do greater things than I have done. He's talking about sharing the word with people. He's talking about sharing the hope that you have within you so that by the Holy Spirit's power, that person will come to know the way. I also want you to notice as you're looking at this that many times it looks like Christianity is waning, doesn't it? It goes so far and then it withdraws. But I, what I want you to see from this is that it conquers, it goes on. The earth and all who are in them. Jesus said in Acts 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was leaving his disciples, but he said, don't be troubled. You'll do even greater things than I. And we just saw over the last 2,000 years that becoming true. And people... I want to encourage you in this day where we see Christianity taking some pretty hard hits, don't we? We see Western culture becoming not a Christian culture. I want you to remember what you just saw up there. Sometimes it recedes, but ultimately it has victory. Finally, don't be troubled. I'm preparing a return. Don't be troubled. I'm preparing a return. Look with me at verse 3. He says, In my Father's house there are many rooms, for not so I would not have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you will be where I am. It's very interesting. They, they did a study in the University of California, San Diego, that suggests that people actually like spoilers. You know that spoiler alert that you get, and you know, don't read beyond this or else you'll know something that'll spoil the movie or the book. The study actually came back and said people like to have things spoiled for them. They like to know the end. One of the researchers had an interesting theory about why people like getting to know the book before they read it, he said, it could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on understanding the deeper things in the story. I find that really interesting. Our spoiler is that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for us. He's giving us the spoiler here. And that should bring you great comfort, people. Jesus knew that once we knew the end, that we would be more comfortable processing the ups and downs of life. That's why I asked that question earlier. What do you, where does your mind go when you are in difficulties? I want to encourage you. Let it go to he's coming back for you. Think about that. Doesn't it bring you comfort? And if not, if that doesn't bring you comfort, why not? I mean, I mean really people of God, why doesn't that bring you comfort? Let me help you in your thinking. Because we place our hope here in this world. That's the big reason. C.S. Lewis wrote, the idea which shuts out the second coming from our minds is the myth that the world slowly is going to ripen to perfection. Isn't that true? Isn't that where our hope is? Well, I'm in trouble. Well, you know what? Life will get better. Whatever that looks like in your life, fill in what that would look like. What if it doesn't? What if your leg will never work the same again? Or your hearing, or your eyes, or your fingers, or your heart? Where's your hope? My heart will get better. What if it doesn't? Where's your hope? That's the great letdown of this world, people. I, as your shepherd, am constantly listening to you. Do you know that? Don't let that scare you. I hope that encourages you. I'm constantly listening to you. I'm constantly seeking to understand what brings you hope. Where are you putting your eggs? What basket are you putting your eggs in? Is it the net, is it the big three? Money, pleasure, and health. Or perhaps in this political year, let me give you things you will hear in the next six months. You know what will give you hope? A better economy, a better president, a better moral structure, a better political movement. That's what this world is going to be saying to you over the next six months. Put your hope in these. Look forward to these. Did you know that the New Testament references the second coming of Christ 318 times? Why? Why? Why so often? Because God wants his children, you and me, to be different. To place our hope in a different place. He wants his children to place their hope and draw comfort from the fact that I'm coming back for you. I'm not going to leave you out there stranded all alone. There's an interesting story on the inside of a life insurance leaflet about a father and his 10-year-old daughter who went swimming on the coast of New Jersey and they got caught in a riptide. And it drew them both out, but the father got free of it. And started to swim back to shore, leaving the daughter. But he yelled out to his daughter as he, was saying, as he was swimming back. He said, Mary, I'm going to shore for help. If you get tired, turn on your back and float. You can float all day. I'm coming back for you. That's the last she heard of her father. Searcher boats were called in. The news had spread. Hundreds of people waited on shore anxiously. It was four hours before they found her, far from land. When she got back, there were cheers and joy and relief. The daughter, however, was strangely calm throughout this whole thing. When she was asked why, she replied, My father said he would come back for me, and that I could float all day. I swam and floated because I knew He would come back for me. People of God, you want to know how you get through life? The difficulties? Right here. He's coming back. Pray with me. Spirit, I pray that you will use these words, pierce our hearts, and bury these truths deep, deep within us. In Jesus' name, amen.